Welcome to the Archive Room podcast. Faster my Judith Lay here, once again opening the door to the Archive Room, Manx Radio's treasure chest of stories of island life from years gone by, told by the people who were there. So come on in, and let me take you for another gentle stroll down Manx memory lane. This week, it's harvest time in the archive room, and who better than the late John Kenyuk to take us on a nostalgic trip to farms in an era when bringing in the harvest was done with a little basic machinery and a lot of manual labour, when there was no harvest Thanksgiving until the harvest was really in, and when mill days and tea fights were the highlight of the autumn calendar. In his programmes here on Manx Radio, John informed and entertained not just the island's farming community, but those of us with no connection to the land loved the easy way that he used his own knowledge to draw out the very best from his guests. So sit back now as we learn everything we need to know about harvest and its traditions in years gone by, as John chats with Ken Collister and Callan Hudson. Here's John setting the scene for his conversation with Ken, recorded in the autumn of 2002. This programme was recorded last Tuesday night as we sat on Douglas Head on one of the most glorious September evenings that I think I ever remember. Now, harvests have come and gone as each year turns, and we've seen tremendous changes. And a man who has been associated with the harvest, in fact, his name is almost synonymous with the Manx harvest now, is Ken Collister. Ken Collister of Collettsons and Cowleys, who have been involved in the Manx harvest, and I've asked Ken to come and talk to me about harvests that he remembers in days gone by. Ken, some people will know that I, I take harvest festival services, and, and if you look at the timing of uh, harvest homes in the countryside. You'll be invited maybe to go to preach at, at Sandygate or somewhere in the last days of September. But when you come to Kerakil or Agnish, we're almost in November before. And that was um, a legacy from the days when, when harvest home was very meaningful to country people. And I suppose you've known, Ken, people who would not go to a harvest home if the harvest wasn't all gathered. Oh, yes, the old people, unless the harvest was all finished, they didn't like going to the harvest home. I remember when I first left school, we were out at uh, Mr Keeley's out in Santon. There was four farms there, Seafield, Glentraw, Ballafert and Aragon Veg. And um, in the year 1947, when we had the snow from the beginning of January out until the beginning of March, it meant that the ploughing was very late getting done and we had 104 acres of corn and uh, rigged up Heath Robinson-type lights on the old grey Fergie and, and the Fordsons were, were going for all they were worth too. And uh, it was October time before it was all finally finished. And I can clearly remember my father saying, well, we can't go to any harvest home until we've got all this finished. It had a lot more meaning for the old people, didn't it? Oh, it had a great meaning. The, the, the harvest was really the occasion of the year, culmination of the year's work, if you like, wasn't it? Mm. Yes. Do you think we've lost something, Ken? Um, because now we can store grain from one year to the next. We'd never seem to be desperately short. But in those days, if if you had a bad harvest, you you had no fodder for the stock. Yes, I think in those days there was a great neighbourliness, and if people were a bit short, they tended to help each other a lot. And of course, they had their mill days when when they were get 20 to 23 people around the table and they'd be talking mm. about <laughs> how good or how bad the harvest were and they had a good idea of what each farm had. And they used to all help each other to a great extent. Yes. Yeah. 
but harvests then were, were much more demanding. I can remember, I'm sure you can remember as well. Uh, do you remember cutting roads, Ken? Oh, yes, cutting roads with a scythe. And making we, we, bands. We, we, better, we better tell our, our non-farming listeners perhaps what, what that actually means. Well, cutting roads with a scythe was actually opening up the field by doing one cut right round the field with a scythe to enable the binder to get in so that the binder didn't jam when you, you started cutting corn properly with the binder machine. It was done with a scythe and uh, a couple of people following up making bands and making sheaves. And then, of course, eventually when the field was all cut by the binder, you had to go and stook it. Ken, let's, let's go back a bit to cutting roads because I, I can remember cutting roads. Well, I wasn't cutting. Uncle Stephen would be the scytheman. He, yeah. he would be the man with the scythe. With um, used to be a striggle tied on the, on the handle of the scythe for sharpening, yeah. like a small cricket bat with um, sort of an oiled piece of wood. With, yeah. And they used to rub sand in it and, yes. and sharpen the scythe. Yes, my father used to be a great fellow for wanting edge. You had to have the edge <laughs> on the scythe to do it. I'd have forgotten how to use a scythe by now, but I can remember those days well. And, and then they, they, they sort of they became modern, didn't they? The sharpening stone, then a carborundum stone, which yes. invariably they carried in their back pocket of their overall yes. and uh, took oh, yeah. edge every now and again. Yes, I remember them carrying that in the back pocket <laughs> of, the, of the dungarees. Yes, <laughs> and us kids would would have to, to lift the, the corn and make sheep, make bands, make bands, and make sheaves. And, sheaves. Yeah. And, and I can remember if if the corn was lying a certain way. It had to be lying off the scythe, off the man who was cutting. Yes, so, yes. And if that was a certain way, he would cut it into the hedge. Yes. Which invariably put it in amongst the briars and the gorse, and, yes. and you were picking thorns out of your fingers for yes, days. Yes, it didn't afterwards. make it easier to, to pick up, <laughs> did it? Nor did the thistles near the hedge. <laughs> but they were they were thrifty and careful people in those days. Oh, they were very thrifty, careful people. I've heard my father say that when he was a young boy, that they used to actually dig the corners out in the fields of St Mark's to the square corners to get the maximum use of the soil in yes. the field, like which, of course, in this modern day and age, wouldn't even be thought about. That's right. Uh, you said, Ken, that the roads were cut to open up the field so it didn't jam in the binder, but it was also done so that the, the horses or the tractor or the binder didn't actually trample it with wheel marks. Yes, that was it. The The other thing what I was meaning was that if you didn't cut roads, and some fellas tried to do without it, the corn would all get jammed round the big wheel and the and and the horses would be pulling and going nowhere because the whole binder would be jammed. Yeah. It was it was quite an occasion, quite a season, wasn't it, when it started? Um, I, I can remember uh, cutting roads and finding the first blackberries. That was that was always oh, yes. to be the time when you were yeah. cutting roads. You'd find the very first blackberries of the season. And weren't they lovely when you oh, came across the first ones when you were out doing a job like that? <laughs> yes. But um, we we cut acres and acres with the binder, didn't we? And oh uh, yes, uh, yes. And it was a very it really was. A a very wonderful machine, really. It really was. I can remember about um, 1950, 51 time, out at Mr. Odson's at Ballamore and Patrick, which was later found by Mr. Ian Anderson, is still in the Anderson family, of course, that we managed to get the loan of an Albion 5A binder, which was a power-driven binder, to do the lower fields because they were very wet fields. And what a help that was in comparison mm. to the old mm. uh, big-wheel drive getting stuck in the mud and whatever, <laughs> like... It was like you know, like a new experience for us, and we thought it was wonderful. It's it's rather strange, Ken, when when you look back uh, and think of the the massive crops of oats we used to grow with very little fertilizer in those days. Oh yes, a couple of bags of superphosphate was all they'd put under, and if a field was was quite a rich field, it probably wouldn't even do that. Mm. And yet the crops of oats and the varieties of oats that were going in those days, things like onward and forward and victory, and were marvelous and stood the test of time. Often enough, um, a heavy 
crop of corn in a lay field would go down and it, it'd be almost flat and you'd have to cut it with the binder yes. and, and cutting that one way. Yes. It's only one way. Well, one way, that, that's, uh, that was a slow job. <laughs> it yes. was indeed. Yes. And pulling tangled sheaves out of the forks uh, oh, so yes. they didn't get wrapped round twice. Yes, yeah, so they didn't get wrapped round the knotter and break the knotter <laughs> and all that sort of thing. Yeah. And, and then, uh, you know, when that was finished, then the job of stooking it, as you rightly say, Yes. And a right way and a wrong way of stooking and uh, oh, heavens, yes. had to be done right. Oh, it had to be done right, <laughs> otherwise they'd never stand the weather. And then they were supposed to hear the bells, the church bells, for three Sundays, weren't they? Yes, they reckon. They, um, some of the people used to be quite content with a fortnight, but they, the, the older generation used to, used to say they wanted to hear the bells three Sundays yeah. before they brought it in. Like, yes, know. because in fact it was cut fairly, what would be called, on the heavy side, you know, before it was entirely ripe, didn't we? We'd oh, yes. like to be in early and not too late. Yes, because you knew that it would ripen in the stook in that period of time. That's really, right. And that's what gave them that advantage, because when combine harvesters came in, People thought you were going to go in as early as that with the combine yes, harvester. Yes, and I can yes. remember Mr. Harley Coke, or our director called Sons and Cowleys at the time, saying to people, if you think it's ready for the combine, go and have a fortnight's holiday and then come back to it. <laughs> yes. We talked about stook and corn, and, and you know, stooks were what eight sheaves. Yes, yeah, so either eight or ten eight, sheaves. Eight or ten yeah, some sheaves. done them eights and some done them tens. Yeah, yes. and uh, left heads up, heads up and standing, and, and hoping that the pigeons didn't settle on them and, and yeah. it wasn't too wet. Yeah. Because and you had a rail on the stiff cart because that gave you a wider yeah. uh, foundation for the load and you could put more on. You and know. cart that home to the Haggart. And cart that home to the Haggart, yes. And, and and stacks made on beds of gorse that had been cut. Uh, yes, you had to put it, get the bed and all down first before you started carting in. Yeah, and then make the stack. Make the stack. <laughs> and they always used to believe in plenty of middle in the stack, <laughs> as they said. So, you know, to, to, to and it was the, the secret, wasn't it? It was the secret because if, if it was caving in... Yeah. Or, or too much and caving out it wasn't right the it job had to be correct and they knew how to stack yeah. they were craftsmen oh yes very rarely did you see a wet stack very rarely indeed and then they used to thatch them and they used to put these uh, they'd get kayar and go round and round the, oh, the yes. stack with the kayar ball yes. and with a pitchfork and yes. put it around and then make like a, a kayar net yeah. and then put the big stones hanging down so that the thatch didn't move with the bad weather that's right and so on. And it was laborious. Oh, a lot yeah. of work. Oh, a lot, of, a lot work. of days' work went into it. But, but before they even got to that stage, Ken, um, you know, actually carting corn in, I noticed on my calendar last week, uh, I think it was the, the 24th, it said it was, it was the harvest moon. And many and many, and I suppose you've carted many a load of corn in moonlight. Oh, heavens, yes. <laughs> yes, it was, it was a thing that was getting done on a fairly regular basis, if you like, you know. Yeah. I can always remember my mother telling the story of, a, of a, a, a gentleman who had a bit of ill health and couldn't get round to getting the corn done, and it was the harvest moon, and they all went uh, after the parade chapel into this gentleman's field, you see. He'd cut it, but it wasn't stooked. And um, they uh, they took and stacked it all. And when he got up in the morning, he couldn't understand how this <laughs> field was stacked. <laughs> and it'd been all the young people from around the parade that had stacked it, like, right, you know, because right. they knew he'd be thrashed into yes, the field. Yes, yes. And they thought he'd be most pleased... And the fellow was ever so angry. They'd stacked it in the wrong place. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But he should have really been grateful that, that they gathered the corn for yes, him and got yes. ready for, the, for thrashing. Yes. yes. But you can remember those those harvest nights, can't you, when there was a, a hard, strong east wind, perhaps, oh, heavens, you know, which yes. was very, very dry yeah. and, and very, very good harvest weather. Yes. And you would work on 
all hours, you know, um, if you thought you could take advantage of the weather. And uh, and it, it really was. A, when the last load came in, it was something to be, uh, oh, yes, to be they, enjoyed. Yes, they used to carry the, the last chief on the pitchfork <laughs> uh, following the last load, didn't they? Right, yes. A lot of people in those days. Yeah. So and glad to get the melia. It was a great time, but the stacks would stand in the hacket uh, and then they'd be thrashed. And, and then that's that's when your your next job really came into play because... Oats would be would be sold to the merchants, wouldn't yes, they? Yes, they'd be sold to the merchants. All the seconds and everything was taken out in the thrashing of Aye. it. So it was good oats, you know. Because they were hundredweight and a half sacks. <laughs> and um, call it Sons and Cowleys, Lottie would arrive. And uh, those chaps were excellent at packing loads and so forth. And they normally put anything 100 to 110 sacks on a load. And it was a lot of grain. Amazing. There'd be two men on the lorry and, and quite often they had a stick with them and they had the stick between the two of them and they just laid the sack on the stick and then lift up and onto the deck yes. of the lorry. Yes. And up again after that onto and the top of the load. And up again onto the top of the load after that, yes, yes. because they were, yes. they were stacking the load as well. Those men must have must have lifted a tremendous amount of grain, Ken, in their oh, time. Oh, tremendous. Uh, grain and fertiliser. I mean, we called Sons and Cowleys used to bring three or 4,000 tonnes of fertiliser in a year. And that was all put over their backs, you know. Fantastic men and as fit as fiddles. I mean, yeah. some of them lived to the 80s, 90s. It amazed me, but they were hardened to their work. Yeah. Like, Can you, you remember know, some of them? Oh, yes. People like um, old Mr. Joe Corkle. He lived till he was 92. And, and there were drivers like Harry Killier and John Oates. And in the north, there was Bobby Patton and Bobby Kelly. There was um, Albert Clegg. A chap I've never mentioned very much was Albert, but he was with us for years and years. And he yeah. was so quiet and yeah. good. And yeah. he was just getting on with it yeah. as if it was the everyday thing yeah. to happen. Fantastic fellas, yeah. that generation. But that's all away in the past now, Ken. That's all, it's uh, all uh, away in the past. Yes. I suppose some would say good riddance. Well, some fellas would think awfully hard of going back to it. Oh, to do yes. all that manual work again Indeed. now, wouldn't they? Yes. Well, we wouldn't go back, no, not we know now, would we? we no, we, I don't we, think we, so. We couldn't go back to no, it. No, I don't think so. But we've come to a very, very different harvest now. And the actual business of the harvest has changed as well, hasn't it? Um, the, mm. the, the, the reason grain was grown, most grain in those days was actually grown to sell to the merchants. Yes. Manx Oats used to be shipped to Whitehaven for Quaker porridge Porridge oats. Did, did Manx oats have a special quality then, Ken? It did. The best uh, oats reckoned to be in the British Isles were Scottish oats and Manx oats. Quakers were very keen to have the Manx oats because of the quality and so forth. And um, that went on right up until the time when porridge sort of went out of fashion. Quakers had to close it down at Whitehaven. But they tell us now that, that oats are becoming popular again. I read an article only well, this week that oats are becoming popular. Well, some people they, say they, that in America it never did go out of fashion. It's still in fashion. <laughs> but they say but, now that it reduces cholesterol and, 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 and all the rest. And uh, could you see it ever coming back again? Well, I, I think it, it's like lots of things. It has its place. I know that we haven't got a, a market for oats as such from the Isle of Man. There is one place in Crewe that, that, that deals in oats, and, and I tried hard a few years ago to get in on that with a market for Manx oats, but I wasn't successful. And I think that they are more or less over onto the organic oats now mm. on, to a specialised job again, you see. It was it it really was a very wonderful way of life, though, Ken. Oh, yes, they, they, they did a lot of trade by barter, if you like. There's a lot of in, trust, in wasn't there? Oh, tremendous trust between everybody. It would be a rare uh, occasion when somebody couldn't be trusted. And we were always brought up to believe that you, you made less mistakes by trusting people than by not trusting them. I suppose some people would say we, we live in a slightly different society than that nowadays mm. with different thinking. 
I mean, there was no such thing as credit cards and goodness knows what all in mm. those days like there is now. <laughs> so what what of the future then, Ken? Well, where are we going? We know agriculture generally is in is in very difficult times at the moment. Um, but we're told, aren't we, um, in, in Genesis in the Bible, that as long as the earth remains, seed time and harvest will never fail. Well, I, I think uh, that's a true saying, and I used to use that in our adverts for years and years, that uh, seed time and harvest shall not fail. And I do believe that. And I think the old adage still remains true as well. It used to be one in agriculture which which said, farm as though you'll farm forever, live as though you'll die tomorrow. Mm. And I think that's still true to a certain extent. The, the fellows who have remained really steady and uh, kept their feet on the ground, not got too carried away with, with all the um, the different influences of, of, of different um, sorts, you know. Yeah. But the fellow who stayed really steady and solid farming, he's still going. Mm. The other thing, I suppose, we will let down the road of specialisation, whereas in the likes of the 30s when there was in no money in anything, they used to reckon to have mixed farming on the Isle of Man and a little bit of everything so that they kept everything going. Mm. And whether this specialisation is now leading us to a, a, a different sort of eventual object again is debatable. Mm-hmm. You have to be open-minded because, you see, when when you look back and think that uh, the likes of cattle and sheep and goats and, and horses and pigs have been known to man, they reckon, on estimate, about 4,500 years, mm. and that barley was found in the pyramids 2,000 years ago mm. and so forth. Man has known how to look after stock, and he has known how to look after crop. And although these different fashions and trends, as I call them, come and go, basically, agriculture is an excellent basic industry, and you have to have food, shelter and clothing, and agriculture is connected in all those three. Mm. John Kenyuk talking there to Ken Collister. And there'll be more from John and Ken at the end of the programme. But now let's eavesdrop on a conversation between John and Callan Hudson, whose father farmed at Balakalin Farm in Dorby and subsequently moved to Balakalin House. Fortunately, Callan has a good memory for his farming neighbours in the Dorby area and the many stories his father used to tell. Who was the man you were telling me about then up on the, uh, toward well, Ailey um, Yeah, I, I think his name was John Corris. He'd be in the 20s, I think, 1920. These York Ranges, very popular. Ones with the open fire, a big oven on the side mm. with a, like, a, um, like a steel latch on them. Mm. And on the other side was the boiler. Yes. Well, Corris got one of these installed and about three weeks later, he was down in the village bragging about this this range. He said, it's that good that you can cook a roast of beef in that oven, he said, three days after the fire's gone out. <laughs> there was uh, oh, old Stephen Quirk out at Keradu, that's right down the end of the bottom of the lag road. And Stephen lived there with his two sisters, Liza Ann and Bessie, and they were church. As opposed to chapel. Yes. And every <laughs> Sunday... Liza Ann and Bessie would trip down to church and Stephen would go first and just to ring the bell. But he never went in. Did he not? No, he, he, he <laughs> rang the bell and then went home. <laughs> <laughs> Telling everybody else to come, but yes, he wouldn't. That's right, yes. <laughs> Earlier in the programme, you might have heard Ken Collister briefly mentioning Mill Days. 
Callan Hudson remembers them very well, and the Dorby tea fights too. On the farms, <laughs> and do you remember mill days in Dorby, Callan? Oh, yes. The mill coming into the district. That, for us kids, was, I think, the highlight of the year. When you heard the mill was coming out, we'd be on our bikes and over to Glen May to meet it coming up the hill. <laughs> Some sparks flying. Steam know. engine, of course. Oh, yes. And it would spend the whole week maybe in the district. In the area, yeah. Moving at night from one farm to the next, you know, usually at night time. That was unbelievable, wasn't yeah. it? Moving a steam engine oh, yes. and a mill in the dark and all the light they'd have would be a couple of hurricane lamps. That's right. And the, the places they could get that mill, mm. you would not believe. They were remarkable <laughs> men, weren't they? Weren't they? But that was quite a social occasion as well on mm. the farms, Callan, yeah. because well, the, the, the neighbours all gathered to help. All the local farmers would go to one, wherever the mill was. Yes. And uh, there'd be about 20 of them there, I should yes, think. Yes, yes. They would get this, the, all the thrashing done there, and then they'd go to the next farm, and they'd all, they all helped each other. That's right. That's all a great, great social occasion. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, the other thing that I've, I've heard my father tell um, many, many times, the Dobby tea fights. Oh, yes, yes. Do, do you remember any I of them? I do, yes. And were they as, <clears throat> as good or, or as bad, whichever way you get to look at it, <laughs> as they're reputed to well, be? Well, one of the tea fights was always at the Harvest Home. The chapel there was... All the stuff that was brought in, fruit, vegetables, sheaves of corn. And then that would be on Sunday. On the Tuesday, I think it was, either Monday or Tuesday night, there was a tea fight then over at the hall. Well, there's the door going in. There's only one door and windows all along. And the boiler, the old boiler was in the corner opposite the door. A cast iron boiler with a... It was um, brick built with the cast iron boiler inside. Right. And then a fire underneath it. Ah, yeah. That was fine until it started to boil. And then the place filled full of steam. <laughs> you couldn't see from one end of the room to the other. And if the wind was the wrong way, you got smoke as well. <laughs> then the auction would start, sell all this produce. And that was Uncle Wesley again, used to get that job. But there used to be a lot of fellas coming over from Ballabeg, Colby, and all yes. that area, on bicycles right. for the tea fight. Now then, before the auction started, They'd open all the windows and put the fire out so the fellas at the back could see Wesley at the other end. And all these fellas from south, they'd be buying all sorts of things, <laughs> which they didn't want, because they couldn't carry them over on their bikes anyway. So what they do, the windows had to be open, as I say, to let the smoke and steam out. They used to get all the stuff and then go along the outside and throw them back at Wesley through the window. <laughs> 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 and he'd be getting as mad as anything. Oh, yes. But you tried to stop him doing that job. Aye. You'd be there the next year. Aye, 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 yes. But it, it didn't finish with the auction, with the tea and the auction, though, did it? There was uh, a lot of socialising afterwards. Oh, yes, yes. There'd be more people outside than there'd be inside, really. They'd be all in groups. And, <laughs> and lots of partnerships started there at, well, at, at Dobby. Oh, yes, yes. yes. I, could, yeah. I, could, I could recount several that I've heard tell of. There are more great stories from Callan Hudson that we'll return to in a later programme. But the last word this week goes to John Kenyuk and Ken Collister. So the harvest is still meaningful, Ken. It's still meaningful. We'll uh, we'll all go to our harvest homes and, and we'll sing the harvest hymns with, uh, with great feeling because... We're part of that scene, Ken, aren't we, that the, the hymn writers wrote about and the poets wrote about. They were writing about us, weren't they? <laughs> well, it's been, a, been our lifetime anyway, hasn't it? Yeah, it has, you know, Ken. And I've been proud to be associated with it yeah. and I've worked with some wonderful people. Yeah. Yes. Ken, we've come to the end of our time, sadly. Remembering old times, Ken, there's always going to be a harvest, isn't there? Oh, I think so. <laughs>
And with that, it's time to close the archive room door for this week with gratitude for wonderful storytellers John Kenyuk, Ken Collister and Callan Hudson. And my thanks to our archivist Tim Price, who finds the stories that he hopes you'll enjoy. If you've missed any earlier programmes or you'd like to recommend them to a friend, all our Archive Room programmes are available as podcasts at manxradio.com and via your usual podcast provider. I'll be back again next week, but for now, this is Judith saying thank you for your company in the Archive Room. Back in the present day, Greatest Hits with Chris Kinley is next on Your Manx Radio, whilst I leave the last word to a mystery voice from the archives. Or maybe he's not a mystery to you. Until then, look after yourselves and goodbye, bye, 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 bye. The Nation Station makes rain.